0: any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic
1: welcome everybody to this pandemic podcast episode of into the impossible a production of the arthur c Clarke center for human imagination at the university of california san diego where we are still sheltering in place and today we have a wonderful uh, new author who has published a, a fantastic new book, which is generating tons and tons of buzz and virality, as is befitting of such a wonderful work. And it's Sarah Fryer. And Sarah's a technology reporter for Bloomberg News. Her award-winning features and breaking stories have earned her a reputation as an expert on how Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter make business decisions that affect their futures and our society. Fire is a frequent c- contributor to Bloomberg Business Week and Bloomberg Television. She lives in San Francisco. Are you still? Are you sheltering there currently? Somewhere in I'm San Francisco? I'm here in my it?
2: in my apartment in SF. Yes.
1: Okay, great. It's good to see us, our friends in in Northern California, are doing well, and uh, it's it's really a treat to have you on on the Into the Impossible podcast. So, Thank
2: you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, it's really a pleasure. So I, your, your book is really fascinating because it it, real, it reveals a lot of insights into how technology and, uh, and science and the type of science that, that myself and my colleagues work on is really becoming you know molded and melded to uh, things that are normally associated with you know, popular culture, influencers, celebrities, and things like that. And throughout the reading of your fascinating book, and I read it, I listened to it, um, you know, I, I meditated on it, <laughs> and uh, it's really phenomenal. Everyone should get all three different copies, all three different versions, and read them all, listen to them all simultaneously. Uh, but what really spoke to me is the kind of lessons that can teach us as a society about uh, about both these these huge endeavors that are influencing our lives in ways that we could have scarcely predicted a few years ago. And so today, I want to talk with you a little bit about the insight that you've gleaned and help. The reader glean about these huge tectonic societal shifts and why they matter to us and, and what might be coming next. So it's really a treat to have you here. I, I want to start with a, uh, a blurb or a review that just I came across in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. And the author writes that no filter offers an engaging account of how tech founders ideals inevitably have to be squared with making profits. Instagram experience usually feels like it's about more than than just the company's bottom line. Over the past few months of pandemic-provoked lockdowns, many users have been trapped at home. The influencers, the normal people, the celebrities. Instagram has stood out as one of the platforms many of us relied on to document and connect each day despite being physically apart. So I wanna ask you first, how how has Instagram affected you? I mean, obviously you wrote the book over the last probably year or two, how is it affecting you as we speak during this, you know, this this pandemic that we're all uh, suffering from?
2: It's so interesting right now to think about Instagram because it it has, as I described in my book, it has become this place where we we go out in the world and we share what we're doing and we use it as this tool to present ourselves as as interesting. Fulfilled people, full of travel adventures and great dining and cocktails and friends and all these things that we we talk about on Instagram and build our lives around this visual aesthetic. Now we're all home, and we're using Instagram in a very different manner. We're using it for live video. We're using it for messaging. We're using it to to tune into cooking tutorials and workout tutorials, live concerts, and and so. Suddenly, this this tool that has become sort of performative in our society has become something more for human connection, which has been a nice transition. Of course, there is a, a dark side right now in COVID, as well as a lot of a lot of faulty information about healthcare is is transmitted on Instagram from these influencers. Um, but for the most part, what I've seen is a, a lot of people trying to have this moment of solidarity. But I think that will change as As cities open up more, we'll probably see more of the uh, the FOMO that we've come to know and and probably hate from Instagram, the idea that some people will be willing to go out and experience the world the way they did before, and other people will still be too scared to do so.
1: Mm. Okay, yeah, that's really fascinating And, and one thing you know I, I look at well, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the book itself and the, the physical book especially being this physically distant but you know socially connected i mean it's physical you know social distancing it's really put the social media and social distancing and i think that that's really um, a fascinating development and some people have said things like i couldn't have survived the pandemic without instagram uh also things like netflix obviously things like that but uh, it's become so integral this thing that didn't exist like somebody said i, I wish uh, I wish, you know, I'm so glad that the pandemic didn't happen 30 years ago because we didn't have Netflix or you know, we didn't even have the internet. And you and I the, were chatting. Yeah, go The ahead. current
2: usage of Instagram and Facebook is upwards and beyond anything they've ever seen on a constant basis. Like right now we are using Instagram more than we do during, for example, the ball dropping on New Year's Eve. Wow. Turning midnight around the world. That's when people tend to log in and say, happy new year and post their videos of fireworks. Right now we're doing that constantly because we're home and we're bored and we crave this social connection that we can get from a, a more visual medium like
1: Instagram. Yeah, you and I were chatting just before we started recording about Zoom and how, you know, unfortunately for your book, I mean, one of the treats of, of an author is to go on a book tour. And I, I know that you'll get that chance to do that some someday, and, and it will be so exciting for you. Uh, and you've earned it uh, certainly by the production of this lovely book. But, uh, but Zoom has made it really possible for us to do these podcasts and to do these interviews. You know, I don't think I would have maybe gotten access to you if there wasn't, if there wasn't you know, this, unfortunately, uh, this, this, this really tragic event occurring in society at large. And, and yet, you know, we, we somehow may do without Instagram and Zoom and things like that. Even, you know, a couple of years ago, their popularity is just, just taken off com- incredibly virally as, as uh, everyone now is familiar with how that term got its name. I want to talk just about the book. I always say i I always um, I ignore the advice to not judge books by their covers, and so I judge every book by their cover and uh, and your book is a as a particularly kind of interesting cover, and it's a sort of a double entendre, I think, uh, in the title as i as I would uh, expect our French listeners to say, can you walk us through the cover? Um, what went into it? Did the publisher pick the you know title? Did you pick it? How did it come to be this title? I know you worked on stories for Bloomberg that led to this, I believe, uh, to led to the writing of this book, but how did the actual cover, the design, the elements, the colors, et cetera, how did they come to be?
2: Well, I happen to have the book right here.
1: Yes, very nice. So people
2: can take a look. So so basically, I I learned from the founders of Instagram that they really appreciated simplicity. And when they were building Instagram, they wanted to strip it down to its most basic components, photography, and do that one thing very well. And so I thought that if I was going to do a book that adhered to the Instagram aesthetic and gave that sense of Instagram, it would need to have a, a lot of simplicity to it. So that's why we have just the the basic letters, the colors, the colors that are the same sort of gradient that you see in the Instagram, in the Instagram logo and the gradient is actually a reference to the filters, the the veneer that goes on our images to make them more artistic for Instagram, which is of course how the app started and got so popular. No filter, I I loved the multiple interpretations of the title. I love that that no filter is is the the phrase that people use when a photo is too beautiful to be edited or you know, already showing something um, perfect in the world, no filter. It also speaks to the fact that the default on Instagram is very cultivated, curated, edited images that people have to say no filter when they're putting out something that is raw and true and real. And I also thought that it was important to tell the unvarnished story of Instagram, that for my years of reporting, we have, I've constantly heard about, how they are just living harmoniously within Facebook as a company within a company, how they've really used Facebook's tools to grow. And um, But basically, Zuckerberg was like a board member to Instagram as opposed to a boss. And of course, that wasn't true. And so I wanted to tell the story with no filter. So multiple interpretations of the title and the cover here. But um, that's sort of how I was thinking about it. And... Mm -hmm. Um, took a while to convince the publisher because you don't usually, apparently, you don't usually start book titles with the word no.
1: Mm. Oh, that's very interesting. I have Nobel prize, which has no in my book, but yes, that's right. Uh, that, <laughs> that could be seen as a, uh, you know, uh, maybe poor marketing. Well, in honor of the gradient, et cetera, here's a picture of the gradient that we posted on Instagram for the Simons Observatory, which has the same color palette, my shirt. You know, I wore this in your honor and the re- roughly hewing to the color choice that you use. Um, I want to talk uh, about this quote. When you um, when you read this quote in the New York Times, uh, they called uh, No Filter a sequel to the social network. Um, how did that make you feel? How did you react to that? I could imagine a few different ways it could go.
2: Well, so I think that, so there are some positive aspects of that because the social network was the first the first movie that really uh, introduced the public to Mark Zuckerberg and helped people sort of understand him as part of our popular zeitgeist and, and it was of course a caricatured version a Hollywood aside version of him um, but that helped people understand the beginnings of the power of this company and this this dominating force uh, but the other aspect of it of course is that I you you've read the book so you know I didn't want to just tell a business story. And I think social network, the social network movie and the the book that it's based on are very much about the the boardroom drama, the backstabbing, the legal issues that come across when building Facebook. When I wanted to when I wrote this Instagram book, I wanted to interweave this the corporate story and that, that corporate internal drama with the story of how the product impacts us day in and day out with how the the many small decisions that people make within the company and their of course their personalities and their egos and their motivations how those things affect our human behavior and like drawing a line between the two so i think that that the social network takes it one step but i want to a, a step further and try to explain not just like what do we care about this in terms of good and evil in terms of domination, but what do we care about this in terms of its effect on us? Mm.
1: Yeah, and I think it, it is affecting, it is having, you know, if you had said a few years ago, oh, Snapchat will be so important for disseminating even scientific information. I'm showing a video that we posted. This is taken by our, our intrepid director, Deborah Kellner, who's a French filmmaker who's making a documentary about the Simons Observatory. It's a time-lapse shot shot from the Atacama Desert, and she's on Instagram, so hopefully she'll tag this. Um, and, uh, and if I had said, well, you know, heard Snapchat would make this big impact. I would have been really dubious because, you know, physically the technologies are so radically different and yet, um, you know, they're often spoken about in the same, in the same breath. And I I started to think about, well, what has been the impact of this? Like how has it affected just my, you know, little, uh, fiefdom of astronomy and the, the only subject that I know particularly well. Uh, and I, I looked up how many pu- pictures has nasa posted on instagram <laughs> and it's it's you know or how many followers does nasa and it's in the millions hundreds of thousands and millions of likes and shares every day um and it's it's perhaps the most effective this and maybe twitter arguably because uh, nasa is very active on twitter and the individual uh players at nasa uh, a friend of mine or a colleague of mine uh, from san diego uh, jessica meir she i interviewed her on the space station and she was taking pictures of, you know, of the earth throughout her six months in space doing spacewalks. And it's had wow. this tremendous influence. I don't think that, that other competitors, say, like uh, TikTok or, or Snapchat, um, really have this influence. Uh, and before we get into the technology, I just want to take one step back to what you said about, you know, the drama and the founders. Um, I was listening to, um, to a podcast this morning, and, the, and the, 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 they were discussing a biographer, of, a biography of one of the presidents, maybe. And this biographer said, "Well, you have to either love your subject or hate your subject, and you know to be to do a good job." And I felt like you know Kevin Krieger and, or uh, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger—they're not really like as hateable as—or I'm not saying hateable. I mean, I don't have anything against <laughs> Mark Zucker, but he's portrayed in that movie as villainous, you know, kind of venal, conniving guy who you know, like cuts out his friends and just wants to meet girls, and and he doesn't come across great. I don't wanna say that intentionally, it's just he didn't he didn't give you access, right? And and Zuckerberg sort of denied access to, to your interviews in the book.
2: Yeah, he gave me one quote.
1: Yeah. And you go through that in the book and I'm just like, <laughs> he doesn't even, you know, make an attempt to steer the story. And it's like, if it's true, I was thinking just in terms of financially, like it's an option. He could have had if he could have steered the message differently on the social network book, he probably, you know, would have taken that opportunity nowadays to change it rather than just suing them or Whatever he did back then, but here he is with an opportunity to talk to a you know a bright young writer, and he just like blows you off. So I think he's much more villainous. And again, I have nothing against him. I've never met him. Uh, he's a great supporter of a lot of uh, charities and stuff that I value very highly. But um, what do you make about that? That the two founders of Instagram come off very very likable. I wouldn't say that they're like really lovable. Like you don't feel super passionate about them. So how do you react to that? You didn't write it. This is not a biography by any means. It's an insider's glimpse into the making of this, you know, this product that's changed the world. But how did you approach those two, those two, uh, characters? I mean, did you come find to you know, uh, feel for them? Did you feel for their struggles or what was your impression?
2: I think that the most important thing to understand is that everyone in one of these stories is human. Like Zuckerberg has his way of viewing the world. Kevin Systrom has his way of viewing the world. And in the contrast between the two of them, you can understand them both better. And and Jack Dorsey is also a a character. He's the CEO of Twitter. He's also a character in the early part of my book. And you understand, you know, his emotion tied up in why he invested in Instagram. And so much of what happens in Silicon Valley can be can be boiled down to those human urges. Um, despite the fact that we think of them as hackers, we think of them as as cold-hearted, uh, direct-minded people, there is a lot of, of pride wrapped, on, it, wrapped up in everything that they do and in, in devotion to the idea of success. And Zuckerberg, I think, just has a very black and white definition for what success looks like. Success looks like growth. It looks like getting bigger. It looks like Reaching more people, and he very much has this utilitarian attitude about it, where the ends justify the means. If you add more people to Facebook, sure, they might they might sell illegal drugs, they might post about terrorism organizations, they might have they might build anti-vaxxer communities, they might do all these things. But he thinks that the the ends of it, the the net community, this globally connected world that he wants to create, um, justify the means. And that's one reason why he has been consolidating power and making sure that people don't really question that future and has been so steadfast about deciding that his way of doing things is the right way because he has been proven right in the past. Mm. And so I think that that when you look at it that way, he's not so much a villain as he is as he is trying to repeat his past successes by being very unable to um to listen to his critics in a way that like anything that his critics say does not discount the fact that facebook is getting bigger more people are using it and i think his biggest flaw so far is that he thinks that the more people using the product the more good it is for them because why would they use it if it wasn't good for them
1: Right. I think you either said this in an interview or in the book, you know, like when uh, Bill Gates said, you know, when he dies, he wants it to be, you know, he's the richest man who ever lived. And you said something like, you know, when Steve Jobs died, it would, you know, he created Apple and, and kind of the I kept, uh, I couldn't avoid seeing the parallels between, you know, unfortunately it's always these stories of men in Silicon Valley and, and, you know, obviously you bring in other characters and and they're incredibly important in the book, but these huge egos and and how much of their identities are wrapped into not only the products that they create, but attributes of the product that comes to shine in this book. And that, as you say, you know, Zuck is focused on the growth of the, not, not the aesthetic, not the not the uh, technical details of it, but how do we monetize? How do we grow it? That's that's how the way that he keeps score, and and you make this point very clearly that you know people like Kevin and and Mike to some extent, um, you know, come off as more more obsessed with the craft of it. And and what I found so fascinating is the parallels between you know these great you know titans of of tech and and how it seems to just play out like in every generation. Like there's this famous saying attributed to Max Planck that science progresses one funeral at a time and i feel like you know it's like technology is also kind of progressing like that that maybe maybe uh tell me if you agree but it seems like you know the aesthetic side is being picked up by the instagrams and the kevin systems of the world whereas the you know the microsoft gatesian obsession with domination and and so forth is being taken up the mantle is being taken up by zuckerberg and, and facebook
2: i think that's true but i think that that i would take it a step further and say like you cannot, or at least Zuckerberg thinks that you cannot fully scale a pro- or quickly scale a product if you care about the little details and the little touches and the tone of something and the craft of something. At a certain point, when you get to a billion users, or you know even hundreds of millions, you start to lose control of what the community does. And it, it gets boiled down to its its most bare incentives, which is, Get more followers get more likes get more comments like the people using the platform start to define what it's for as mm. opposed to the company and i think that that kevin and mike uh, they were they were very focused on promoting the good of instagram and of of showing off how wonderful it was that all these communities were connecting and how simple and perfect the community could be meanwhile the people who use instagram some of us as humans have a more Zuckerbergian mentality where we're all about growth. And now that we can see the measurements at the top of our feed, we can see the analytics, we know what kind of content does better on Instagram and we can adjust our behavior just like Zuckerberg adjusts the Facebook product. We can tweak, tweak, tweak until we know our best photo angles, until we know what works. And, and I think that that was really interesting to me to see, to see these Facebook tactics be taught to us at large as a society, um, while Instagram is trying to teach us how to be creative and cultured, it's it's kind of interesting to see that ultimately what wins out is this drive to, to grow and appear successful and to measure that success in a way that is that is more numbers based as opposed to subjective.
1: Mm. So uh, another thing that really spoke to me in the book is you portray the competition that endured even after the acquisition, the famous acquisition, um, which, you know, created so many headlines, the first kind of, you know, app unicorn, 13 employees, and and you go through and it's really, it's, it's amazing because it must've been a challenge for you to like make something suspenseful when A lot of people already know the story, uh, how famous it is. Uh, I mean, talk about the challenge of, of, you know, portraying a story and making it so exciting when, you know, the outcome is sort of spoiled. The spoiler alert was out there years before the book.
2: As journalists, we're always focused on answering the question of what's happened and what will happen next and trying to break the news and get the details. And then we have to move on to the next story. And with a book, what you can do is you can go back to all those people that were involved in the story at the time and say, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Who argued for what and what did they say? And who was in the room? And what could it have gone differently? And that was really fascinating to me because but at, before I went into this project, I didn't realize that the Instagram employees didn't make, mo- and for the most part, didn't make money off of the deal. The news stories at the time said that, you know, Instagram is now worth 77 million per employee right. and everyone yeah. just assumed that they were all millionaires. No. <laughs> and in fact, that's not how it worked out. And, and there were other, like I had no idea how heartbroken Jack Dorsey was that Instagram sold to Facebook instead of to Twitter. So mm-hmm. in peeling back those layers, you understand the human side of the story and all of the factors that went into the part of history. that. So it's kind of like a decoding project where you figure out like this is, this is just these are just people. I mean, there's not there's not any sort of rules to how these things are done. It was mm-hmm. the first billion dollar app of app acquisition ever. Yeah. And they kind of just invented history as they went along. And the way that they the way that they decided to do things, it was not inevitable. It's not like this could have just happened with any photo app it, and it could have been, we could have lived in a completely different world, depending on the different decisions that they made.
1: Yeah, I was not aware of this, uh, you know, pre existing app called bourbon. And you you go into that fascinating history. And yeah, the counterfactual of, you know, how this could have played out. I, I I first, you know, just because it's my prerogative, it's my podcast, I want to ask you, don't you think it would have been more natural for Twitter to buy Instagram? Doesn't it sort of more Twitter like than Facebook like? I mean, now it's like, instagram by facebook on the bottom of the app it just seems like you go into that and it's just like kind of just just kind of jars me what do you think what was more natural even even with the benefit of hindsight is twitter really or is facebook really the right home for it
2: well i think twitter is more natural and that's also why instagram didn't want to go there because it was too similar when mm-hmm. the twitter board looked at instagram they saw wow this is the perfect way to post photos on Twitter. <laughs> like, this is a parallel network. It's pretty much the same thing. There, it still is as a follower model. So the biggest diff, one of the biggest differences between Facebook and Instagram is Instagram. You can follow people who don't follow you back, mm-hmm. and that's the same as on as on Twitter. There's anonymity on Instagram. You can have multiple accounts on Instagram the way you can on Twitter, whereas Facebook is all centered around real identity. Right. So when they when they would. If they had gone to Twitter, Twitter was saying, oh, Kevin Sistrom could be head of product at Twitter and also run Instagram. Like there wasn't as much clarity of like the division. Whereas when Zuckerberg went to mm. Kevin Sistrom, he said, you can be CEO, you can be independent within Facebook and we won't touch you.
1: Huh. Yeah. And that, that's exactly segues into what I want to talk about next. It struck me as so odd, uh, the scenes that you uh, portray in the book are really kind of unsettling in a sense, and I tried to make an analogy because I'm you know, just a simple-minded astrophysicist, but, uh, but I was thinking when we hire a professor, like a young professor from say, someone who's a postdoctoral fellow, so after graduate sc- school, you probably know, you, know you, might, uh, you might become what's called a postdoctoral fellow or scholar where it's kind of a purgatory in between being a graduate student where you work for somebody else's projects and when you're starting to come up with your own ideas as an independent scientist. And so if we're trying to hire somebody, we don't like hire, you know, hire a professor and then, and then say to her, now you're like, now you're a threat. Like now what you do (laughs) is directly competing with what we do or I do. I hired, I was on the hiring committee. No, it's not like that at all. Or when you get married, it's not like, well, let's say you worked at the same company. Now you're like a threat to my promote. Like it just seems, uh, it seems, you know, for lack of a better word, it sounded a little bit like. You know, if you if you look at Facebook as a corporation, as an individual, uh, that they they have no zero emotional intelligence. It just struck me as so odd to set it up, and yeah, they had to carve out a CEO and and make you know that was one way of handling it. But what 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 affected you about the way that they were perceived as almost like this enemy cell within within Facebook or competing? Keep your comp- friends close, keep
2: your enemies closer, right? <laughs> I- <laughs> I mean I think Facebook needed to buy Instagram in order to make sure that it didn't get uh didn't take away from Facebook and one of the things that really shocked me in reporting this out is just a few weeks or within a few weeks of Instagram joining Facebook you know they go through their orientation they they get set up in their office and the the only guy working on analytics at Instagram goes to meet with the growth team at Facebook and the growth team says hey listen, welcome to the team, but we're not going to help you guys until we find out if you are going to be at all of a threat to the amount of pictures that people post on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So already they were willing to sacrifice the potential of this asset that they paid a billion dollars for, which was unheard of. But they knew that the most important part of the acquisition was taking Instagram off the field. From there, once yeah. they figured out that it wasn't a direct threat to Facebook, then they could build it up and have sort of a Facebook 2.0 within the company. Um, but that was foreshadowing for what happened later, of course, when, when Instagram gets to the size where Zuckerberg does feel like it's a threat to Facebook. And, and you're right, I feel like that's that's not, a, that's not the way that, that if you are a consumer of these products, you think it would go when I went into writing this book, when I put out my proposal to do it, I thought maybe I would be writing about Facebook's future. I would be writing about you know this this thing that at a time that Facebook is under scrutiny, it's been widely critiqued people are leaving it and, and you know, saying that they have a bad experience there. Mm-hmm. They're escaping to Instagram, and maybe Instagram is like the second wave of of Facebook's dominance in the world. And when I started digging into it and realizing that Facebook did not want that to be the future of the company, I thought that that was really interesting. It just speaks to to what we've been talking about—ego and about Zuckerberg wanting to to achieve dominance in the in the way that he sees fit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like a Greek, you know, tragic kind of fatal flaw. But you know, you can't argue with with success. And as you mentioned in the book, you know, they're kind of different ethos that they would staple, you know, on Post-it notes or paint on the wall you know versus the way that kevin and mike were more kind of open even with like you described like a glass garage door you know partitioning their off uh it's it's sort of you know versus the walled garden and and i think it was in your interview with kara swisher a couple a couple i think it's a month ago now when the book first came out uh in april and you're talking about you know just the level of kind of Um, almost dread that one feels when one logs onto Facebook and like, am I going to see some stupid red dot, you know, versus Instagram, which is kind of like delightful and, and provocative, but, but one, and it kind of draws you in and you're not going to be just like, you're, you're the product as soon as you get on there. But uh, I want to talk about how it became so viral in your opinion and and really what it means to you now, Um, uh, which, which is really centered around the thought, like I personally don't really care what some Kardashian wants to, you know, promote if, you know, her lipstick or or whatever, um, what, what is sort of the, the, the responsible for more of the success? Is it the everyday people, you know, you talk about these accounts that went viral overnight from like a dog account, (laughs) you know, just like so cute. And like, I'm, I'm listening to your book and I'm like, you know, typing into Instagram, I got to follow this account, you know, like everybody's follows the Instagram, you know, main account, but what about the, 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 um, you know, kind of the dichotomy of, of usership, you know, between the ultra famous influencers, you know, who clearly make you feel like the product uh, versus the individuals, you know, the, the, the riffraff like me who want, feel like, Oh, we're using it as a product ourselves.
2: I think that what, what it's done is it's made everyone a potential famous person mm-hmm. that if you just tried at Instagram and, and decided to come up with a brand or decided to come up with, you know, whether it's your photography or your baking or whatever it might be, that anyone has the potential to become an influencer or even has the potential to be seen by other people in society as interesting and worthy of attention. And so I think that the the big effect of Instagram is that it's become this societal benchmarking tool. It's like something where you know, if you walk down the street and you'd see on someone's forehead how much money they make, that's kind of what Instagram is. You would look at someone's follower count and say, oh, this is how culturally influential this person is. Just crazy to have in our society. like, yeah. like Even we, with the
1: verified, we, you know, the verified yeah, we've, check marks. Yeah, we've never
2: really had something like that before. Um, and, and I think that that, it, that can be, it can provide great opportunity for people. So, you know, like the owner of that dog that you talked about, or certain fitness instructors who got into the millions and following uh, without going through the normal gatekeepers. So if you want to be an actor, if you want to be a comedian, if you want to be a singer, you kind of just start on Instagram and get to your dream a different way. On the flip side, it creates this tremendous amount of personal stress for people who are using it and caring about those metrics. And and even forcing people, you know, they feel like they need to do this in order to be successful. And so they'll cheat and they'll buy followers or they'll buy comments or they'll adjust their appearance through Facetune or plastic surgery. And, and I think that it's it's that sort of harmful effect that we need to understand about Instagram so that we can kind of give ourselves a break when from talk- the pressure we feel.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that that is, you know, that's endemic to all these, you know, channels. It's sort of like you know, it's ironic in this age of coronavirus that we want to be viral and be famous. And I just, I remember watching this, there's a documentary with with Bill Murray in it and he says something to the effect of like, um, you don't want to be famous like <laughs> try being rich because you know rich gives you most of the perks of that being famous could even potentially give you uh, without a lot of the risks and downsides <laughs> of being you know, stalked and having big brother and AI and content reviewing
2: getting and, hacked a lot of people, yeah. people get hacked on Instagram
1: right and their most intimate uh, things go out um, yeah to me I'm always thinking of this quote by uh, George Orwell in animal farm when he talks about Benjamin the donkey and I think the pig talks to Benjamin and says, oh, you have such a nice tail. And the donkey says, you know, uh, the, fl- the, the, God, uh, the Lord gave me a tail to swat away the flies, but I'd rather <laughs> not have the flies and not need the tail. Uh, and and uh, I, I can, I can you know, sort of identify. Luckily, with, you know, a thousand followers, I don't have to worry about that. Um, I want to talk about technology. And, and uh, we, we chatted before the show. And I, I think you have the same uh, publicist or uh, the same folks at, at um, uh, is it, uh, Simon & Schuster. Yeah, yeah as as, uh, as Peter Diamandes, who was on the show a couple of uh, weeks ago now, and I talked to you about what uh, Peter and his author co-author uh, Stephen Cutler describe as the as the six D's of technology of exponential organizations, and according to Peter, those are digitization, deception, disruption, demonetization, dematerialization and democratization he talks about different fates in fact he uses the different fates between kodak and instagram to illustrate how these different um these different technologies really affected the world i mean kodak had uh, essentially the first patent on the ccd camera on the on the you know instant you know kind of digital camera and they they squandered it and they wanted to b- remain entrenched with their technology of you know physically printing out photographic film whereas you know. Instagram could scale up and uh, codex a shadow of its former self. But uh, I'm wondering about the technology, you know, in his language, these these different um, uh, forces, exponential forces that are coming over time there is a limit to exponential growth. We can't, you know, we don't live on on a planet with infinite resources. We don't have infinite numbers of people. Although, you know, sometimes it would seem that way. Uh, But um, how does Instagram and and even Facebook counteract these exponential realities, uh, you know, growth with the reality of living on a finite resource planet?
2: Well, isn't it crazy that the biggest barrier to growth for Facebook is not competition, but the limited number of people who use the internet in the world. Yeah, I mean, that is just mind blowing, right? Like they have, they have about 3 billion users of all Facebook properties now. So that's Facebook, WhatsApp, Messenger, and Instagram. And there are about 7 billion people in the world. They already have the majority of the world's internet connected population using Facebook. Yep. The rest are in China. Facebook Outside is. of
1: China, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. yep.
2: Yeah, where, where Facebook properties are, are still blocked. And so the way that Zuckerberg is trying to build upon that, I mean, he's running out of ways to grow infinitely, but he is trying to increase the number of connections between people. So one of the things that really frustrated the founders of Instagram is Zuckerberg decided that he wanted to build a mega network, that he wanted to connect the networks of Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Messenger, and call it one family of apps and have it Mm -hmm. all operate under Facebook so that people could message each other, whether they were on WhatsApp or Messenger or Facebook or Instagram, they could message each other on other uh, platforms, platforms and therefore increase their overall network. He's also trying to get people to use Facebook groups so that they can befriend people who they haven't met in real life. Mm-hmm. Because if you're in a Facebook group and you're talking with a lot of people about a, a certain topic, you can befriend each other um, without ever having met. And so by growing these networks to be larger, he increases the potential for the freshness of the platform and also the amount of value we get from each other. But there's a, there's a flip side to that, which is when our networks are bigger, we share less intimately mm. and we don't feel as comfortable being our full selves. And so I think that, that although you can look at it in the very utilitarian, grow, grow, grow um, mentality like Zuckerberg does, you also have to think about the costs of that growth for the experience of
1: the user. Yeah, that's certainly, you know, the threat I I would say is, you know, kind of over-engineering the product. And, you know, it's clear that Facebook has enough talent that they could have, you know, made an identical replica of Instagram. In fact, you describe their very efforts to do that and their challenge faced by Snapchat. I wonder just personally, again, my prerogative, uh, you don't have to answer any question, but do you use Snapchat? And if so, how much, because I find it, uh, not appealing, maybe I'm, you know, pre-boomer, you know, okay, Gen X guy, but uh, but nevertheless, I I don't find I don't see the appeal of it. Uh, can you can you speak about that? Is it a threat to Instagram, Facebook?
2: I I think that it is more in the messaging category and mm. more for young people. I think I think Snapchat is intentionally difficult for older people to use. Um, it is you swipe up, swipe down, left and right, and it's not very intuitive for people who. Started on computers, but I do think that for the younger generation, because they have that smaller network, they can be more intimate. And Snapchat is actually bigger now than Twitter. Yeah, to think, oh, but it is
1: cap. And by market cap or by user base?
2: By user base.
1: Oh wow, it's also I think market cap is bigger too.
2: I think I think you're correct by that. And and the other big threat is TikTok. TikTok has become a major escape for young people during coronavirus because. It is full of, of happy videos, yeah. things showing pets doing silly things and dance moves and cooking. It's, it's just a, a different kind of experience as opposed to um, what you get from, from Instagram, Twitter, where you have to create
1: the content. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Yeah. Just to give my, um, my millennial credentials, I am on TikTok. So there you go, <laughs> but I'm not, uh, I'm trying to do, you know, a uh, one minute general relativity co- quantum electrodynamics lectures on Twitter. Oh,
2: TikTok. I love that. I should follow yeah. you. Yeah.
1: Great. <laughs> you'd be my, you double my follower base. So I hope you, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, I look at it and I think about, you know, you write about the, the, the really the early history and, and even the, the tie-ins with Jack Dorsey and and Twitter. And I started thinking about it in terms of, and you must have had this cross your mind too, you know, that both the, you know, the emergence of Twitter and Instagram came about after the, you know, 2008, 2009 financial collapse. And and really the popularization of Facebook, really, that's where the knee, that's where the, you know, the the takeoff point and the ramp of exponentiality took place for Facebook. What do you think will be that uh, for this COVID generation? Do you think it's, Something like TikTok or or, or something like Snapchat or is it something that nobody's thinking about and in the words of, you know, Facebook, you know, founder Mark Zuckerberg, you know, if we don't make the thing that kills Facebook, somebody else will. If we don't make the thing that kills Twitter, what what is next? What's going to come out of this COVID, you know, um, pandemic that could rival something like an Instagram
2: I think it's, it's very possible that something will come out right now. But whenever there is a big disruption in the way people live, there is always opportunity to fill the needs
0: mm-hmm.
2: of of everyone. And I haven't seen it yet. I mean, TikTok is certainly, I, I would say TikTok has already emerged. Snapchat has already emerged. I wouldn't consider them startups. Yeah. Uh, what I think that we will see is something that helps people feel entertained, connected, but so far, the big bets that have launched have not fulfilled the need. Like Quibi in, uh, with this big video platform that just launched seven-second or, sorry, six-minute videos for people uh, during quarantine. They thought that people would really want to watch it because they'd watch it during the daytime as opposed to the evening when they watch Netflix. hasn't caught on. No. So, So I think that people are going to keep trying things, keep trying new things, and this is the time to attempt it. Um, because with constraint, there is creativity. That's one of the things that the Instagram founders learned early on. They made square photos and they thought with the square photos, it'll be just like Twitter's 180 character limit. With constraint, people become creative. And, and what bigger constraint on the way we live than
1: coronavirus yeah. So I've, um, a past episode last year, I talked with Julian Guthrie about her book, uh, alpha girls, which is a wonderful book and I've recommended that she get in touch with you <clears throat> about fa- female founders in the Silicon Valley, um, ecosystem of the, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties. And one thing that really comes out of her writing and that really kind of, uh, eerily echoed in your writing is that this, this is really a book about leadership in a stealthy way, because I think you're, you're, you go through and kind of, um, I almost feel a little bit like Kevin is sort of a, Kevin system is, is a is a little bit pathetic, not like in a negative, but just that you have sympathy for him because, you know, he tried to be a, like he he studied how to be a leader. I mean, he was trying to be a leader. He, he tried. Was- yeah. And he took courses and you put, you talk about, you know, how he has these slogans. And a
2: management and, coach was the big personal improver.
1: Yeah. And you kind of see this, you know, it's parodied in Silicon Valley, you know, the TV show, you know, it's just like having your gurus or whatever. And, and, you, and you talk about, you know, that he took the, and I, you feel almost bad for him because in the end, you know, he start. I mean, it's hard to feel too bad because he's got a billion dollars, but you know, he's also what 36, 37. He just had a kid. Uh, Where does he go from here? And well, let me take a step back. What leadership lessons can you take from him? Because we often have situations where we'll have an experiment and it's an arch competitor of ours, but we obviously could be much better if we merge and achieve the synergy. Um, Do you think ultimately like he fell sort of on the sword to do what's best for the the child or the creative, you know, the, the thing that he created? Or do you think he just had a failure to see that this huge python was going to swallow him like a like a uh, a pangolin? No, I'm, I shouldn't say that. But uh, a pangolin. Do, yeah. Do you feel he, like that? yeah that he was just like kind of a, a, a unaware and and almost um, you know kind of got what he deserved because he didn't game out in his uh, in his mind all the things that it could be taken
0: away from him.
2: I think he was a very strategic person in terms of his diplomacy internally at Facebook and the fact that he didn't get it right really bothered him. I mean, he thought that he had Zuckerberg figured out. He thought, as long as I keep growing Instagram, as long as I ramp up the revenue and I keep users coming back, then Zuckerberg, I will And also, if I help crush the competition, then Zuckerberg will respect me and reward that effort with more independence, with more resources. And in fact, the opposite turned out to be true. Mm. That when he when he did crush the competition and build up Instagram until its growth was accelerating in 2016, Zuckerberg then looked at him and saw a threat. So I think that he miscalculated what was going to happen if he succeeded the way Zuckerberg wanted him to. And I think that sometimes when we when we do what we think we should do in order to win, it, it doesn't always result in the the way that we think is most logical because we all have our own biases around what we think like leaders uh, i guess i should say kevin cishram was on bloomer television a couple of weeks ago my colleague sarah fryer
1: just came out with a book about instagram called no filter and her conclusion is that facebook is underinvesting in instagram specific problems i wonder if you agree with that and if so Does that concern you about whether Instagram's growth will falter? I mean, Instagram for investors is one of the great hopes uh, of Facebook's overall
2: growth. Should they be concerned that Instagram won't grow like it did?
0: Well, I haven't read the book. Um, I did live the history, right? Um, And I saw places where I think we invested appropriately and places where I wish we had invested more. Um, But the truth of it is that we grew the platform to over a billion people and you don't do that with nobody uh, and you don't do that with no resources. Um, That being said, you know, I, I don't know what's happening on the inside. And for me to speculate what investments have or have not been made is very difficult to do from the outside. But, you know, if I were in charge of Facebook and I saw something like Instagram, I'd obviously invest a lot in it to make sure that, you know, it becomes another pillar of the many products that we have as a company. And I think that's just the logical argument uh, to make and the logical thing to do. And I think Mark's a very logical person and, uh, and hopefully he's following that.
2: Well, he thinks in that moment that he's appealing to Zuckerberg's logic, but really the thing that ultimately helped Zuckerberg make the decisions that he made was, was more about ego, more about how he perceives his own success. And so I think that that painting Zuckerberg is too one-dimensional, is too um, focused on the numbers, uh, discounts the fact that he's also human. He's also trying to, to win as a leader, too. Yeah. So, so I think that, that at a certain point at the top of a company, there was only there's only room for like one guy who feels that they have the perfect vision. Um, and it was only a matter of time before
1: they clashed. Yeah. Yeah. You see this a lot in uh, one of the people who blurbed your book, Ashley Vance and the book about a- Elon Musk. And you've seen this yeah. obviously, in you know, Steve Jobs, uh, movies and, and the books written about him and, and now you're seeing and the social network and now you're seeing it in no filter, your wonderful new book. I want to um, conclude or start to, to wrap up a little bit with thinking about technology and, uh, and how technology will influence the future of things like Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, et cetera. And that's this notion of 5G connectivity that's very important here in San Diego because we have Qualcomm here and Qualcomm is one of the pioneers, has some of the first patents in the 5G space. Uh, so, again, Stephen Kotler and Peter Diamandis spoke about, well, this is going to be one of the most, you know, most transformative um technologies that will define the future will be the advent of 5g and i'm wondering and that's primarily because of the reduction in latency between um, different effects taking place uh, on the internet and queuing and more targeting of individual handsets do you see the technology of things like 5g or or anything else being used to kind of augment instagram in the way that's a snap glasses or whatever they're called. Uh, Snapchat had their Snap, or still does maybe. Uh, Google had their uh, their Google glasses. Oculus uh, was acquired by Facebook. You know, Thanks to Instagram for three times as much money as you talk about in the book. Is there a technology that will augment Instagram or will it get left behind potentially in this 5G revolution?
2: Well, I think that there are a lot of use cases that you could imagine right now. Like what if you could watch a live musical act and everyone in the musical act was performing from their own home, but they could all hear each other and harmonize. Like, mm. that would be really cool. So, so I think that there are ways that either you can do more real-time face recognition technology, uh, Facebook, there's a, the data aspect of it, right? Like Facebook will be able to quickly understand what's happening in our videos. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and be able to target us ads in real time based on what we say and do, um, which is kind of a scary thought, but it's certainly more possible in a 5G world. Mm -hmm. Um, We can lean a lot harder into video as users, and I think we're already seeing that happen during coronavirus. I mean, we're doing this call over Zoom. I think that kind of thing will become a lot more uh, prevalent. Um, I think that the... We might skip over VR as the technology that that will be life changing, and maybe switch to AR. Um, we're already seeing that become quite useful on Snap and these funny face filters. But there would be many more applications for it down the line, like for telemedicine. So, so I think that that there are certainly possibilities with Instagram, and I've seen I've seen a lot happen on Instagram um, with regards to live video that I didn't expect, yeah. um, and I think that we will be able to see a lot, a lot richer content.
1: Yeah, I had a nightmare after finishing the book on Friday and realizing, well, what happens in the first person? You know, does their live Instagram feed of their you know plastic surgery to make themselves look better for Instagram? You know, it's just this their infinite regress. <laughs> I think oh, that's
2: already happened. <laughs> oh really?
1: Oh God! Oh, so, oh my yeah, nightmare! Oh sorry.
2: Done, done live. Life surgeries oh life why'd you have to tell popping? me that sarah I,
1: I wish i could unlearn that um i want to finish up uh because we only have a couple minutes left i want to finish up with the kind of where are they now and where do they go from here so you know being kicked out of a you know company you know is a hard thing a founder of something uh, especially at a young age now, you know, he has a billion reasons, or, you know, the better part of a billion reasons that might assuage some of the pain of the blow of being let loose of so this company. So hard. Yeah. But where what is he doing now? I mean, you usually hear these, you know, politicians retire uh, even when they're young because they want to spend more time with their family. Uh, you know, I mean, is that, I mean, that's noble. It is. But, but what is, uh, what are they up to now? These two, uh, these two founders?
2: Well, Mike Krieger just had his first kid, um, Kevin Fistram had his second, he learned to fly a plane. Uh, That's
1: right. Yes. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes. Generally, the two of them say that they are trying to figure out what they want. They're sort of decompressing after this six-year high-intensity period and trying a lot of things, uh, a lot of experimental things. And right now, they're doing a very interesting project called RT.Live what it looks at is the reproduction rate of coronavirus in certain states, Mm -hmm. the likelihood that a person who is infected will infect other people. And so they, so remember how I told you in the beginning of our conversation that for Instagram, the most important thing was that they solved the issue as simply as possible that they focused just on photos. Well, now they're doing that with coronavirus. They're trying to give a, 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 a website where you look at it and you see a very simple answer about whether a certain state is safe or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of interesting, but I don't think that's their next company. I think that they're going to they're going to continue to noodle on what they'll do next. But I do think that they're likely to do it together.
1: Ah, well, it's good to hear and that they maintain that connection to one another. You know, a lot of times it kind of drives people apart, you know, even families, you win the lottery and then that's the end of the family as you descend into uh, addiction and and, and, and resignation. Okay, so uh, we're going to finish up with uh, five questions that I call the final five. On the into the impossible podcast you're here with sarah fryer amazing new book no filter is really captured in a way not just the technology the rivalries etc but the the real personalities is a i felt like you're a detective uh really on un, unraveling some of these uh, very intimate personal details of the story that would, would have remained hidden without, without your intrepid journalism. So I thank you so much for bringing thank this you. book to life. So the final uh, uh, questions, uh, some of them revolve around books and some of them are just to learn so our listeners can learn from high achievers, top performers like you. I'll start with uh, two that are about books. Um, so Carl Sagan uh, had on his daughter and Andurian's daughter Sasha Sagan a couple of weeks ago, and he spoke about books as magic, as sort of a device, a technology that can insert somebody's words. And, and nowadays, he wrote that before you know audiobooks are really popular. Now you can actually hear the voice. I believe you you narrated the uh, introduction, right? Of no filter. I did, and that was lo- really lovely. And the uh, the other narrator, she did a wonderful job too. But I want to ask about um, the future in this book, and and kind of what what you see as the long-term influence of the book. I usually ask people. Would you rather have, if you're an author, would you rather have a hundred people reading your book a year from now or you know, or one, one person reading it a hundred years from now? Um, so I'm going to ask you that. Uh, even though it's about a technology, it's also about you know eternal stories of rivalry, of competition, of struggling and documenting a particular phase in the world. So which would you rather have, Sarah, a hundred readers tomorrow or one reader a hundred years from now?
2: Wow. Well, I would hope that if a hundred people read it tomorrow, that somebody will find it a hundred years from now. But mm-hmm. I, I think, I think that it is, I mean, it's already feeling like a story about a moment in time that, that people will, will look at this as the the 2010s in Silicon Valley. And I think that the New York times said that in their review, um, especially now that our lives have changed so much from the time of this book's publication, you can look back at it and, and see it as a slice of the, this, this dramatic, increase in visual communication um this force that affected society and so it would be very fun if somebody read it 100 years from now
1: (laughs) and as far as those readers uh you know either now or in the future hopefully you'll have plenty of both um what would be your preference for people to read it would it be people that are kind of Uh, either skeptical that Instagram is really, you know, kind of an important enough contribution to our culture, you know, people that are, that really view it and decry its, its negative influences on society as we touched upon, or people that really are just super curious about, you know, how did it grow and, and so forth. So kind of uh, haters or fans, what's your ideal target audience? If you had to choose one.
2: My ideal reader is somebody who, who uses her, who has known about Instagram's impact on their life and who has maybe changed their behavior to adhere to Instagram, but doesn't know why. Mm. And they read the book and then they understand the behind the scenes, why we do what we do on Instagram, how we got there, that, you know, that they can then take a step back and think, okay, now I know why I act this way or why my friends are acting this way. And I can, I can disentangle myself from this pressure and, then understand how to use it in a more healthy manner.
1: Ah, nice. Uh, Okay, next question revolves again, uh, sort of on uh, past advice, if you will, or stuff in the past. So the title of this podcast is one of uh, the Into the Impossible podcast is one of Arthur C. Clarke's famous laws. His first law is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic you may have heard that. Uh, And the second uh, law is that uh, that the only way to find out what is possible is to venture beyond a little bit into the impossible. So looking back at your career and where you've been, is there something that seemed very difficult when you were, you know, a younger person and starting off that having done things such as writing this book, which is a huge accomplishment, um, you know, you would give advice to your younger self in your twenties or or what have you, uh, that, you've been able to see by going a little bit into the impossible, you can achieve such great things.
2: So the advice to my younger self? Yeah, basically. Well, I think I would say that when you're starting out your career, you start out as a people pleaser. You start out trying to be helpful, trying to be curious, trying to fit in where there are gaps. And it took me a long time to understand that my opinion. And my way of seeing the world was valuable. And so if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I would want her to understand that it was that it's okay to say what you what you want to know and, and to, to drive your own coverage and to drive your own questioning um, and not wait for someone to ask you to do it. And because once I got to that point in my career, once I realized that what I was doing was of value to people, then I started to get the confidence to dig into projects like this.
1: Oh, very good. And the next question I ask all my author guests is who's going to play Kevin Sistrom in the movie treatment that I'm sure you're working on?
2: Oh my gosh. I'm so bad at actors. <laughs> one person told me Keanu Reeves, ah, but he might okay. be a little old, but and
1: shorter he's still a good
2: one. Still goody. goodie. Right.
1: And still t- uh, and might not be tall enough. Probably
2: would need to be someone someone tall. You're right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then the final thing. <laughs> what do you question, think? Uh, I was thinking about that and the guys who played the Winklevi twins, the that, that, that guy or oh, those yeah. guys I think that'd be a good a good I was actually surprised that, that, that they if they really wanted to get back at Zuck, the best thing that they should have done is bought Instagram, you know, when it was younger and smaller and they could have taken it <laughs> just directly venally <laughs> instead they against, went into Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly, right. Maybe that uh, that was a better decision. Who knows? And then a uh, last question is just where can people find you? Uh, what are you working on now? Uh, and uh, yeah, a little bit of the plug zone. So let, let us know what you're working on uh, next. Is it another book or other projects that you're involved with? And then how people can find you.
0: So Instagram. I'm
2: a reporter at Bloomberg and Businessweek, and I'm still digging into all of these same stories. Um, trying to I just reported on so acquisition of jiffy uh i've been reporting on the fact of coronavirus on tech workers all sorts of things in that vein uh you can follow me on twitter at sarah fryer or instagram also at sarah fryer Uh, that's where i tend to post the most of my stories and i always the one thing i'll say is i always look forward to hearing from users of these products i think that you can't fully tell the business story unless you understand the consumer story, and so I always appreciate people reaching out to me and telling me how these platforms have affected their lives, where they're running into trouble, and where they see opportunity.
1: That's wonderful. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your wonderful book. Congratulations on this huge accomplishment, and we look forward to seeing all the interesting things you come up with going forward. Thank
0: you, Sarah.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Take care.
0: Bye. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, rate, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD. Watch us on YouTube. Listen on iTunes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Eric Veary, Director, Brian Keating, Co-Director, Patrick Coleman, Associate Director. Produced by Stuart Valco.